G'day everyone. Today we're going to explore the idea of mission. And I wonder what comes to your mind when I say that word mission, or the word missionary, or mission trip, mission journey. What comes to your mind first? It might be images of brave people with Bibles in hand who arrive at some remote location only to be immediately speared and eaten. Or maybe it's the image of highly trained, highly capable individuals standing up the front of church or a conference somewhere and recounting the work that they've done for the Lord in far-off places and strange cultures. Or maybe what comes to your mind is not so much an image as a feeling. Might be the feeling of excitement. Might be the feeling of admiration. Might be the feeling of regret or the feeling of guilt. In Acts chapters 13 and 14, we read about what has come to be known as the first great missionary journey. And what I want us to do today is to look at the beginning of this story of two missionaries being sent out on a mission trip and to learn some things about Christian mission more generally. Because Christian mission is a much, much broader topic. So let's say it again, we're going to look at these two missionaries going on a mission trip to learn something about the much broader topic of Christian mission. First of all, let me tell you a story about two different missionaries. We can call these different missionaries perhaps Bobby and Sam. Bobby and Sam are both keen Christians. They're good friends. They've led youth group together for a few years. And one night they're talking. Bobby says to Sam, there are a lot of places in the world where nobody knows about Jesus, aren't there? Sam agrees, there sure are. And all those people who don't know about Jesus, they're going to go to hell if someone doesn't get over there and tell them the gospel. Bobby says, you and I have been leading youth group for a few years now. We've memorised a gospel presentation perfectly we could do something. Sam says, you're right. We have to do something. If we don't do something, all those people will perish. Bobby says, it's up to us. Let's do it. Sam gets out his phone and says, I'll book a flight. Bobby says, I'll pack my bag. Two days later, they find themselves in a gospel poor country with passion in their hearts and gospel tracts in their hands. Now, just think for a moment, what is good about this story? What is good about this story? And is there anything that is not quite right about this story? What do you think? Well, we'll come back to Bobby and Sam and their mission trip a bit later on. But let's turn now to Barnabas and Saul and their mission trip that we find in Acts 13 and 14. This mission trip begins and ends in a certain place, Antioch. We heard a little bit about Antioch a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 11. And I just want to say that Antioch was an amazing church. Antioch was a growing and diverse church. It was the first church to include not only ethnically Jewish people 
And not only people who have been somehow attracted to the Jewish religion and were familiar with it. No, at Antioch, the gospel spread for the first time to Greeks, to polytheists, to people who had no prior allegiance or interest in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is an amazing development and the believers in Jerusalem heard about it and they sent Barnabas to Antioch to encourage them. And we were told great numbers of people believed and turned to the Lord. Antioch was a growing and diverse church. And it was a generous church. They heard that a famine was coming over the whole Roman Empire. And so they took up a collection to send relief to their spiritual brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who they'd never met. In the last verse of chapter 12, we hear about Saul and Barnabas returning from Jerusalem where they had been delivering this famine relief gift. Amazing. But Antioch was also a learning church. Barnabas had gone off to fetch Saul, or Paul as we know him, to come and use his great scholarly training to give this fledgling church a good grounding in the truth. And today we read in verse 1 that they were blessed with prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Saul were the original ones, that's why they're at the beginning and the end of the list. But in the middle, there's various others who reflect the diversity of the church's membership. In a small group, you can dig into the details and see the different story of all these individuals. But in verse 2, we find that they were also a church who were hungry to do God's will. Now, their church was only about three years old, but it had seen explosive growth. And you can imagine the kind of forwards thinking that this kind of explosive growth could lead to. They could have started thinking, well, a lot of people have joined our church, so we'd better build a big building to meet in. We'd better make our music more professional. Let's get some more comfortable seats in here. Let's build a cushy office for the assistant minister, and so on and so on. You can imagine that, can't you? But that's not them. In verse 2, we see the leaders of the church in Antioch worshipping the Lord and fasting. Now, this is a little bit curious. Uh, This section and one verse in the next chapter are the only clear mentions of fasting in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. Some people today find fasting a useful part of their Christian life, but I really can't find a biblical basis for saying that it's something all Christians are called to do. But in any case, it's what these Christians in Antioch were doing. And for them, it was an expression of their urgent desire to know God's will for the future of their church. And possibly through one of the prophets who was there, the Holy Spirit gave them an instruction. In verse 2, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, the work to which the Spirit has called them is clearly a work in another place. And if you or I were in that meeting and heard this instruction, I wonder if we might have thought, oh, really? Barnabas and Saul, those guys are the best teachers we have. They're the cornerstone of this place. Can't we send some of the more junior guys instead? We could, we could manage without them. But this church is generous. They are willing to release their most treasured leaders for the sake of mission elsewhere. 
And so off Barnabas and Saul go. Here's the first thing for us to notice about these two missionaries. They are sent out by their home church. They didn't just cook up the idea of this missionary journey on their own. Verse 3 says the leaders of the church placed their hands on them and sent them out. This was a gesture of solidarity. Laying hands on the missionaries was a way of saying these two men are going out as our representatives, with our support and with our blessing. These two missionaries are sent out by the church. But of course, the church hadn't cooked up this idea either. They hadn't poured over a map of the Roman Empire and constructed a salvation strategy. No, the church had sent these two out at the direction of the Holy Spirit. This is emphasised again in verse 4. It says, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went to Seleucia and from there to Cyprus. As well as saying that their church sent them out, at a higher level it's also true to say that God sent them out on this mission trip. And so off they go on this adventurous missionary journey. The journey covers two chapters of the book of Acts. It's going to take us two more weeks to get through it. But today we'll look at their first stop at Cyprus. This was quite possibly their first stop because it was where Barnabas had grown up. They travel through the island of Cyprus, probably teaching in a synagogue in each town where there was one. Until eventually they get to the city of Paphos, where the Roman governor ruled from. In this kind of province, the Roman governor was called a proconsul. And it's interesting that Luke is always very good at giving us the correct Roman titles in different places. But the proconsul is not the first person that Luke points out to us in Paphos. Look at verse 6. They came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Interesting character. This guy has a Jewish background, but he's also, frankly, a worker of the dark arts. He seems to have been useful to the proconsul in making predictions about the future. But he doesn't do it by the power of the true God. He does it by the power of demons. We see something similar uh, in Acts chapter 16 later on. This man, Bar-Jesus, who's also known as Elimus, he's put in the foreground of the story. We read on, we find the proconsul is an intelligent man. He wants to hear about this new philosophy that is being taught in his province. He sends for Paul and Barnabas to come and tell him about it. But when they get there, Elimus opposes them. He's either telling the proconsul not to listen or he's telling him that this message is untrue. And this leads to a pretty dramatic moment. Verse 9, we read, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now, I don't know about you, but in ministry, I have never tried this kind of approach. 
It certainly doesn't come naturally in our culture of tolerance, where we're more inclined to say, well, Alimus has one opinion and I'd like to share an alternative opinion. That's not how it works there, is it? What do we make of this? There's a lot in the Bible about speaking with gentleness. We might wonder, did Saul just make a mistake here? Did he just lose his cool and blow his stack? Well, if you look closely, we see it wasn't that. Verse 9 says that Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at Elimus and gave this message of God's judgment. Acts talks about people as filled with the Holy Spirit when they are particularly in tune with the Spirit, when they're particularly fired up by the Spirit for a particular task. And just by the way, it doesn't mean that the rest of us are only half full of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a liquid. Anyway, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been particularly directed and empowered by God's Spirit at this moment to pronounce this word of judgment, this curse even, on this enemy of the gospel. It's kind of similar to what some Old Testament prophets did in the name of the Lord, including cases where they pronounced blindness on people. It's pretty confronting for us, but it shows us something about these particular missionaries who've been sent out. It shows that they are empowered by God. Saul, by his own strength, couldn't just strike someone with blindness. But this work is done by the mighty and sometimes terrifying power of the Spirit of God. And we see the impact of this event in verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed by the teaching about the Lord. Just like in the ministry of Jesus, we see here word and action working together. The proconsul heard the message about the risen Jesus and he saw this powerful sign performed by the Spirit of Jesus and these two together lead him to put his trust in Jesus as Lord of all. It was actually Elimus' opposition to the gospel that led to the work of power that made the proconsul believe the gospel. Saul was a smart guy, but his intelligence, it wasn't the thing that made the difference here. Saul was a very knowledgeable guy, but his knowledge is not what made the difference here. It's the powerful work of God's Spirit that makes the difference here. This dramatic episode shows us that these missionaries are doing God's work by God's power. What do you think happened to Elimus in the end? We're not told any more about him. But it's interesting that he was struck blind for a time. Saul himself had once been struck with blindness for a time. Saul himself had once been an enemy of the gospel. Until he was struck blind by the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. And so these harsh words and this sign of judgment on Elimus, they may not have been the end of his story. Anyway, let's start to wrap up and form some conclusions. You've probably noticed a few ways in which the story of Barnabas and Saul is quite different to the story of Bobby and Sam. Different 
in the way it begins, different in its motivation, different in the way it's conducted. Now, not all of us are sent out to foreign countries and foreign cultures. Some of us are, many of us are not. There is something distinctive about being a missionary in that precise sense of the word. But that doesn't mean that it's just missionaries who do mission work. So the rest of us can just sit on the couch and relax. Barnabas and Saul, we saw, were sent out by their home church. And this reminds us that Christian mission belongs to the whole church. We're all part of it. One way we're part of it is by supporting missionaries who get sent out, partnering with them in prayer and financial support and encouragement and resourcing. And All Saints has been heavily involved in missionary support for years and long may that continue and grow. But Christian mission is bigger than sending and supporting missionaries. We see in the Bible that the church as a whole has a mission. Together, we all have this mission to be Christ's witnesses in the world wherever we are. We all collectively have a mission to be making disciples and baptising them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Most of us can play some sort of speaking role in this mission. Even if it's as basic as saying, yes, I am a Christian believer and I belong to all saints. All of us can participate in the act of witness, which is gathering with other believers on Sundays to worship Jesus. All of us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can live such good lives amongst unbelievers that they notice and ask questions. We may not have the authority to curse people with blindness, but by the power of the Spirit, we can persist in doing good and speaking the gospel, even when there's serious opposition. And that will stand out. Christian mission belongs to the whole church, and it's done by God's power. But even further than that, we can say that Christian mission is bigger than the mission of the church. Because the church's mission exists within God's mission. The fact that we saw Saul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit reminds us that mission is God's project. He began it before any missionary was ever born. God is the great missionary. He sent out Barnabas and Saul because he himself was already on mission. This is important for us to grasp. Because if we lose our grip on this truth, we can easily end up thinking that mission is about saving people from God. But in fact, whatever we do, whether it's local or global, whether it's loud or quiet, whatever mission work we do, we are joining in with what God is already doing in his world. He's already at work reconciling his world to himself. Mission is not something we cook up because we're concerned about the lost. It's something that God has already initiated because he cares for the lost. Over the next two weeks, we'll continue on this journey with Barnabas and Saul. We'll go with them on their first great missionary journey. And I hope this journey will be an encouragement to us, an encouragement to us to keep playing our part in what the missionary God is doing in his world.
Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you for the way you care for the lost, for the way you sent your son to seek and save the lost, for the way that you are still at work in this world to reach the lost. Please guide us, empower us and send us to be part of your saving work. Amen.